Welcome to podcast number 60 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is July 23rd, 2019, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Rachel Bell, who is a serial killer expert and worked for Court TV's Crime Library for 11 years, starting in the late 1990s. Crime Library was created by her mother, Marilyn Bardsley, a serial killer expert and crime author as well. Rachel researched and wrote about more than 70 other criminal cases, including John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, O.J. Simpson, and the Green River Killer. Notably, a task force used her court TV story on the Atlanta child murders. She also wrote with her mother and David Lohr, criminal expert from Discovery ID and Huffington Post, about the BTK Dennis Rader serial killer. In fact, Dennis Rader used their story to taunt the FBI right before his capture. She is a new podcast. Her first podcast series was about the Cleveland Strangler, Anthony Sowell. She interviewed retired detective Melvin Smith, who investigated the case and actually found many of the 11 bodies. Her next podcast is about Dennis Rader, where she talked with our previous podcast guest, Catherine Ramsland, about her talks with Rader and her book about This is not an episode to be missed. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're quite welcome. And how's the weather down there in beautiful Savannah, Georgia today? It is hot and sunny with blue skies, and I couldn't ask for anything better. And I can say the same about my little uh, place of uh, patch of the earth here in uh, southern New England. Same weather. We went from uh, a cold, dreary winter and similarly cold, dreary spring into the cauldron of summer. So uh, be careful what you ask for. You might just get it. So anyway... (laughs) So we met in uh, New Orleans at CrimeCon, and you had a booth in the Exhibitor Hall along with other podcast uh, and media uh, persons. And I was so taken by your story and the story uh, of how you've gotten into true crime and the true crime genre and how your life has been impacted by it that I had to have you on the show. I mean, it's a real, true, truly a, a really uh, wonderful opportunity to talk to somebody that has been there um, from being before it was as as blown up as it is now and and can give me a historical perspective as to what's taken place and also talk about um, some of the investigative work that goes on uh, with true crime. So uh, I'm just going to let you take it uh, and go from here. Tell me about uh, how you all got started in this and and where it's taking you to now. Well, sure. No problem. Well, I think my interest in crime started when I was five years old. My mother, Marilyn Bardsley, and my father, Alan Bell, got together in the early 1970s and started writing a book on the Kingsbury Run Porso serial killer case. It was a case that Elliot Ness had worked on in the 30s. It was a huge case in Cleveland, and it still is. And what was really interesting was my earliest memory was seeing my parents when I was five years old in 1970. 
1995 on a popular Cleveland show called The Morning Exchange. And they were being interviewed about the book they were writing. And the reason why they were doing the interview is because at the time, my mother's life was being threatened. Well, actually, both my mother and my father's lives were being threatened. As it turns out, my mother had found out who the serial killer might be. And uh, the serial killer had family that was very prominent in the upper echelons in government. In the, in the Cleveland that, area? Was being threatened. In the, in the Cleveland area? No, no. Like this. No, in the the government, in the Senate. Oh, okay. So my, yes. So this was in the 70s. So there was a lot of threats made to my mother and they thought, well, maybe one way to stop these threats is to just break it open on, on TV, which they did. And um, the reason why my mother knew who she, or at least who she, she thought the killer was, was because when she was going to Case Western Reserve University in the early 70s, late 60s, she took a class with one of Elliot Ness's um, co-workers who worked on the torso serial killer murders together. And the prof- the guy was teaching a class. He was a professor of one of the classes she was taking. And she pulled the professor aside at the end of class. And she said, I know who committed these Kingsbury run torso murderers. And he said, who do you think it is? And she said, Frank Sweeney. And he became enraged and screamed at my mother saying, who gave you that name? Who gave you that name? And my mother knew that she got the name right, that it was Frank Sweeney. Mm -hmm. And she then um, talked to Elliot Ness's wife. Elliot Ness had passed away by that time. But she interviewed Elliot Ness's wife, and I have the audio tape somewhere. And in the interview, Elliot Ness's wife uh, confirmed that that she, too, um, believed that it was Frank Sweeney heard from her husband prior to his passing away. So my mother knew she was on to something, but she was fearful for her life. They wrote the book, but they put it in the file box and tucked it away. And it wasn't until just recently she died this January um, 2019. And it wasn't until recently, last couple of years, that she wrote the book and she fictionalized it. But Frank Sweeney and the, and the Kingsbury Run Torso Murders and the name of the book is called The American Sweeney Todd by Marilyn Bardsley. Okay. And so what's really interesting... I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, and and why did uh, Ness not act on his suspicions and why was there no arrest of this uh, individual? Well, the family had um, very high connections. One of the family members was, I believe, in the Senate. It might have been Congress or the Senate, one of the two. And so um, it was detrimental to their career if the book was to be published. So that's why they made the threats. And so the reason why they stopped was because of that. And they, the killer, Frank Sweeney, was actually institutionalized in a psychiatric facility. But every time he managed to escape, another murder with the same signature, the same MO, happened. But every time that he was back in the psychiatric facility, there was no more murders. Got it. That's a, a very And compe- so it was compelling. kept secret, I believe. Yeah. Yes, yes. So in the 1990s, in its infancy, my mother at the time was working um, at MCI, and she was working alongside, it was either MCA or GE, one of the two. And she was working with Vince Cerf, who is the founder, the father of the internet. I didn't know that. And um, she, yes, mm-hmm, yep. 
And he's a very nice man. He, we would have him over for dinner often. And in during that time, my mother had a dream that when the internet was really new and it was called the World Wide Web, she had a dream that she created a crime library. So the next day she told us of her dream and she, my stepfather and I, began creating a virtual crime library and an encyclopedia of every crime we could think of. And of course, I worked for free because I was the daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was I was cheap with child labor. <laughs> I was actually an adult, but I was cheap, right? I was free. Mm-hmm. And um, and what's really uh, exciting is who also started with me at that time was a renowned forensic expert and author, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who's also a serial killer expert. Right. And, and she- my mother. Was a, and she was a, a podcast guest uh, last year. That's correct. Yeah. That's right. And she was at the booth with us at the crime con. Right. And I see her as like a big sister to me. She's a, an absolutely amazing woman. So we started at a crime library in the late 1990s. And then Court TV bought up Crime Library and put my mother uh, as the person who ran Crime Library. But it was then in, owned by Court TV. Okay. So I worked for Court TV's Crime Library for 11 years as an author and a serial killer expert and researcher. And that's kind of how I got led into this field, starting from a young age up until the 90s and, and early 2000s, um, up until about 2010. And then I decided that I wanted to uh, finish my education and get my my master's degrees. I was living in the Netherlands at the time, and I had gone to school there at Leiden, uh, the Royal University there, and worked at a forensic institute and in prisons in Europe. And I was very excited about the the criminal mind and wanted to understand more and and get the proverbial why question answered. And so I found myself going back into it and I moved stateside in 2007 to the Savannah area and started a private practice there where I do counseling. Well, what was really neat is I work with uh, sex offenders and other criminals. And so I continued to do it. But until just recently, and I'm talking the last couple of months, I decided to start my own podcast called Crimes Unlimited at Crimescape.com. And the reason I did that is I had written a book about sexual obsessions gone wrong, um, the the legal ramifications of paraphilic behaviors. And so I wrote a book about it for Crimescape, which is another company that my mother and my stepfather, Elliot Bardsley, began some time ago after after we left Crime Library. And so I find that I've been in the field, gosh, uh, for at least 20-something years, about 25 years. And I interview forensic experts about cases that they've worked on. And of course, uh, Dr. Kathleen Ramsland was one of the the main ones that I've done, and that should be airing soon. So I'm very excited about it. And uh, how many uh, episodes so far, may I ask? Sure. I just started. I have my first one out on the Anthony Sowell uh, Cleveland Strangler, who was a serial killer um, rapist, and um, he was also an addict. And I interviewed the lead homicide detective in the case in Cleveland, Ohio, named Melvin Smith. And Melvin Smith actually helped find many of the bodies. Oh, boy. And then the second podcast is with Dr. Catherine Ramsland, and that's about uh, the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. And as you know, she is the biographer of Dennis Rader and has been doing in-prison interviews with him for about, gosh, five to eight years. And so I interviewed her 
and that's going to be in a four series, um, four episodes. So the Sowell case is uh, four episodes, and the BTK with Dennis Rader case um, with Dr. Catherine Ramsland is going to be four episodes. Yeah. And thereafter, I have interviewed Greg McCrary on the Craig Price case and Mark Safrick um, regarding uh, another case, another serial killer case. Okay, uh, I don't know. Robert the- Lee Yates. So I don't the, the the person that you just mentioned uh, the first person after Catherine uh, the name of uh, he's you're going to interview him regarding what case again? It's Greg McCreary. He's one of the original behavioral science unit FBI investigators and profilers. He's one of the original criminal minds. He worked alongside um, some of the most famous in the field and uh, including John Douglas and Roy Hazelwood. And so he was there when Hoover was there. (laughs) Wow. When Hoover was in power. Yes. And he had some fascinating stories, but I interviewed him about the Craig Price case that he helped solve. Okay. And can you tell me briefly about, um, can you tell me briefly about the Craig Price case? Sure. Craig Price was a teenage serial killer and his first murder was when he was 13. He was from Warwick, Rhode Island. And uh, he had uh, killed a, the first person was he was 13 and the other three people, a mother and two children, um, he murdered when he was 15. And at that time, the Rhode Island didn't, um, if you had committed a crime at such a young age, um, it would be expunged or you would be released when you became an adult. And because of the severity of his crimes and the risk of his um, continuing to kill, they reenacted, or, or they, I'm sorry, they re-implemented um, new laws or old laws that had previously existed and um, to make sure that he stays behind bars. He was actually put behind bars on other charges as well, um, mostly misbehavior while he was in jail. Okay. And then uh, Raider and the, uh, and the BTK? Yeah, so BTK killer, BTK BTK stands for bind, torture, kill, because that's how he murdered his victims. He's a serial killer, an American serial killer, and he had murdered many people um, very violently. And Dr. Catherine Ramsland uh, interviewed him. She would go to the prison and um, get to know him. She wanted to understand what was making him tick, why he did it. Um, and she did it because she wanted to be able to use that information for training of other forensic experts in the field. So in the future, they can use that information to help prevent um future crimes and capture uh, serial killers earlier. And so she interviewed him in prison um, for about five to eight years. She was interviewing him. Now, his uh, the the very first person you talked about, um, Adam, last name, I'm sorry. You mean Anthony Sowell, the Cleveland Strangler serial killer? Yes. So he was in the Cleveland area. Where was Doug Rader? I, I know he was in the Midwest, but exactly where? It's a little lost to me. Yes, Kansas. Kansas. Yes. All right. So, uh, and then this uh, and this youngster, uh, young teenage serial killer was up in the Warwick, Rhode Island area. So, yes. uh, I just, you know, thinking about all this, you know, you're talking about um, the writing of a book in the 70s, uh, a true crime book. And, and they existed and there was lots of, uh, I guess, local interest uh, about uh, true crime cases. I, I think one of the biggest ones of a national level was Truman Capote in Cold Blood. Yes. Uh, but it was, um, 
they usually had their own area on the shelf, uh, written about in the tabloids because obviously they were grisly. And, uh, but very, before the seventies, very little, uh, documentation of them in, in film or in, uh, TV and kind of relegated to a, um, a place in, in American media of not being front and center, so, so to speak, with what was, you know, with mainstream television and, and mainstream pub, uh, publications. So you were on the front end of this, seeing this wave grow and change through the years. And can you comment yeah. about that a little bit for me, please? Yes, it was. It changed um, a lot. It wasn't until the 90s that it started to, especially with Court TV, you know, the O.J. Simpson case. Right. Garnered America's attention and crime came to the forefront more than ever. And Court TV was made famous because of that. And so it brought crime um, and the understanding of criminal behavior and legal proceedings on into the American living room. Sure, with the advent of cable. Right, that's right. Yeah. And so at that time, it started to really, you know, grow and boom, should I say. And we were um, starting to, uh, we, at one point, we were getting 18 million page views for Court TV's crime library that my mother had created. Wow. And it was pretty amazing. I mean, at that time. So it was huge and it was just exploding. And then around 2010, they stopped with Court TV's crime library for some reason. I think it was mismanaged at the time um, when my mom had stopped and it, it died. And there just wasn't that interest in crime up until just recently. We're starting to see another boom in the crime industry in terms of um, understanding the criminal mind, forensics. And I think that's in part because of a lot of, you know, again, cable, criminal minds, CSI and such, law and order. And those have brought it to the forefront again. Well, and and then, so I thought, well, this is this is a good time to start a true crime podcast. And here we are, John. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Now, Rachel, yeah. uh, another thing I think was a, a watershed time in uh, true crime. Uh, I, I don't know even how to explain it. True crime. Just I'll just use the word true crime. Uh, was uh, serial the making of a murderer, and it, the podcast yes. world became uh, it, it blew up for lack of a better word. Yes, yes. Uh, can you comment excellent, about that at excellent all? Excellent podcast. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it blew up. It, it it reached the world. It was a huge success. Um, that and, um, you know, it just set a precedent and, you know, woke up a lot of us that have been in the field of crime for decades, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It woke us, it woke up the sleeping giants, shall I say. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's why you're seeing a lot of forensic experts, um, you know, discussing, uh, and, and teaching a new generation of people about crime, about forensics, about what makes these people tick and why they do the things they do. So big hats off to, to the podcast Serial because it definitely inspired me. Um, and inspired a lot of other people too. And then seeing the results from some other podcasts, I won't name names or what the podcast names are, but that the podcasts have actually had an active role in solving unsolved or poorly solved, not poorly solved, unsolved cases or cases where um, the uh, the findings were not correct in the first place. And later on, uh, the true findings were able to come forward, such as uh, cases where there was uh, uh, 
thought that a person died of natural causes, uh, and it turned out that it was a homicide, or that a person died of accidental causes, and it turned out to be a homicide. Uh, suicide not being uh, properly di- uh, not diagnosed, uh, determined, and finding out that it was a homicide. So there's a lot of things that uh, the podcasts have now had an active role in doing, but it's also interesting that, uh, I, I don't know if you saw this when we were in CrimeCon, but uh, how some of the uh, cases are being crowdsourced. I mean, have you yes. lo- look at looked at that at all? Is this yes. a ph- is this a phenomena that you're uh, studying at all and looking at? And can you comment? No, about I'm it? not. I'm not studying that particularly. My study is more about the uh, serial killers um, and how they're captured, their minds, so the psychology behind them. Because I am a mental health counselor, so I've always dabbled in forensic counseling and loved it. Have a passion for it. It's behavioral aspects that fascinate me of the actual criminals, right? Because my goal, like many of these people's goal, is to help put an end to it or capture it early on to prevent further harm or future harm. Mm -hmm. And what I love to see is I I was very delighted to see at CrimeCon in New Orleans that there were so many people working collectively together to help solve crimes. And I really believe that that should be the goal. It shouldn't just be entertainment. Right. It should there should be a goal to help better understand that we could use in training for training purposes and that we can help prevent. And so I love that the podcasts are being most of the podcasts, not all, are being used to do this. Yeah. And so again, these podcasts are bringing in some of the great forensic experts. Um, they're bringing them all together to discuss cases and help solve them. And and to uh, what you're saying. Uh, it, it is opening up the doors for solving unsolved or cold cases that have, yes. that have been essentially uh, put on a back burner or collecting dust by the law enforcement entity that was charged with the initial investigation. And, and now some of these cases are, are being reexamined and being, and being put under a fine tooth comb. And our, our friends uh, in law enforcement aren't necessarily always happy about that because it's they're they're being their their work is being put on their microscope as well however i I, i've talked to other uh, podcasters that say that sometimes law enforcement welcomes a fresh set of eyes and fresh generating uh generation of interest in the case years later years later because uh, a person may want to come forward now and offer information uh whereas uh years earlier they might have been reticent to do so or afraid to do so or the situation wasn't right. And now with the interest of the podcast now coming out and magnifying that case in that particular geographic area, the people are getting... in that area are being touched again by the uh, the crime, and they're uh, given an opportunity to uh, maybe come forward and give some additional information. Uh, yes, that, and, yes. Go ahead. You were saying, and something. I and I saw that when I was working with retired homicide detective Melvin Smith. And what shocked me about the Cleveland Strangler case of Anthony Sowell hmm. is that um, when he wanted to go into the backyard of Sowell's house on Imperial Avenue in Cleveland. Um, his supervisor tried to to prevent him from doing it. 
which was a shame. But, you know, being that Melvin, you know, retired detective, uh, homicide detective Melvin Smith was, you know, didn't sit down for this. He said, look, how about we just get dogs and we'll see what the, you know, what happens with the dogs here, the cadaver dogs. So he went and got the cadaver dogs and sure enough, um, they got a hit and he finally got permission to dig up the, the backyard of Anthony Sowell. And lo and behold, there were three more bodies. Hmm. So, you know, it's not always the actual investigators themselves. There may be someone from higher up or there may be something political going on that might, uh, you know, make it more difficult to do what the homicide detective wants to do. And also with the Anthony Sotowell case, I had contacted um, the prison where he was, uh, Chili Coffee Prison in, in Ohio, to um, talk with Anthony Sowell. Both Melvin Smith uh, and I wanted to both talk to Anthony Sowell, the serial killer, because there were so many unaccounted for victims. There were so many um, people that had gone missing and they had the same MO or signature um, as Anthony Sowell's other victims. But would you believe it that uh, the police force in, I think it was in the eastern part of Cleveland, actually lost some of the records. They couldn't find it of the murders. So, you know, the other issue was, was that Anthony Sowell didn't want to talk with us so we can bring closure to the family. That was what we were hoping for. Um, so maybe at a future date, because I'm going to keep going and trying to get that interview um, to find out some of the names of the his other victims, because we both know there's more, especially there was a body. There was a head in a bucket found in his house. And um, and there's no name to that that person. So um, hmm. still so much to be discovered, still so much to learn. And when and when did the, his uh, atrocities take place? And um, around two, early 2000s. Okay. So this is relatively recent then. 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And how was he, uh, how was he finally uh, apprehended? Well, one of his victims managed to escape. She had been strangled. Um, he had raped her, strangled her, and he thought he killed her. And a few hours later, she popped up off the bed and actually scared the life out of him because he thought she was dead. And she was able to schmooze him and say, oh, I kind of like how aggressive and hard you were and how, you know, I like how you, I like you and I like what you did to me. And she was able to sweet talk herself out of there and started walking down the street before she could catch a rant run when he was no longer looking and she went right to the police and of course they went and got a warrant for his house and when um the uh, the team got there they saw they could smell that there was decomposing bodies and so they sent in a retired home homicide detective uh, melvin smith and his partner to investigate and they go upstairs they were overwhelmed by the smell of bodies dead bodies and they go upstairs and sure enough there's two bodies in a room with flies and larvae and mm-hmm. body bugs all over the place and they go in and they see the two bodies and then they find a plastic bag with another body and then they look behind the wall and there's another body then they go down into the basement and there's a few more bodies there including a head in the bucket and of course that's what you know made him think when he and um and Lem Griffin, his partner, went out to the backyard. Um, they thought, you know what? I bet there's, I bet there's more bodies back here. And the shocking thing is, is um, before he was uh, identified as being the serial killer, he had had a barbecue in his backyard. 
And the homicide detective, um, then homicide detective Melvin Smith, interviewed one of the men and said, did you eat any meat that was unusual or different tasting? And he, and he said yes. But of oh. course, they couldn't connect it to it being one of the bodies. There just wasn't enough information there. Mm. So I was very interested to know if there was necrophilia or sexual cannibalism. Yeah. Um, because often when you see one paraphilia, which is a sexual obsession, right, you see a few sexual obsessions or a few paraphilias happening simultaneously. And uh, and he was arrested, I take it, on multiple counts? Yes. Yes, and, he was. And, uh, and is going to serve the rest of his uh, natural life in uh, prison, I take it? Yes, he's on death row at Chillicothe Prison in Ohio. Um, he uh, was found guilty on 11 counts of murder. Of course, he's trying to appeal it like crazy, but mm -hmm. it doesn't look good at all. I think many of them or most of them have been overturned. And I think that's why he's not interested in talking right now. He's too busy appealing and it wouldn't look good legally if he were to you know, reveal any more names of other victims, which we know there were. And uh, unfortunately, uh, missing persons or yeah, missing persons reports from East Cleveland are are, are missing. <laughs> so this is from the eastern part of Cleveland, not necessarily East Cleveland, but okay. on the eastern part of Cleveland. I saw. And um, East Cleveland is its own city, right? And okay. um, so it was in the eastern part of Cleveland. And yeah, there was a lot of people missing. A lot when when Anthony Sowell was actually caught. You know, they had so many families converged. Um, on the Imperial Avenue, you know, his house was knocked down. It was demolished. Oh, I didn't know but that. so many families came and posted uh, pictures of their loved ones that had gone missing in the same area. Hmm. So many. How about that? More than yeah. More than uh, what are the, the bodies that were accounted for on the property? Yes. So I would, if I were to guess, I would say well more than the eleven that were found. I wouldn't be surprised if there was more than twenty because he started to get sloppy. He started to um, devolve in his, um, you know, he was he was getting really messy, um, okay. and that shows that he's been doing it a while. He was getting complacent. And, you know, not caring as much. And so his victims were getting away. Um, several victims managed to get away and live. Um, and it was horrific and shocking for mm. them. Imagine the trauma. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, so I wanted to just touch base on something that you said. Court TV now has become uh, a new uh, channel. They were they were bought out or they, they morphed or changed names. Yes. So Vincent Politano is now... Um, uh, started with, it's called Court TV. It's still called Court TV and it started this May. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So it started back again, but it's, it's very new. It's not quite like the old one, mm. but it's fun. It's exciting. And it's, if you're interested in forensics and you really want to know what it's really like, what's really going on, um, it's great to watch. And is the, uh, and is the, uh, the webs, not the web, the research, the wiki like re research that your mom did, uh, for the original court TV, is that still available or is that, uh, lost to, uh, lost to that, to the, uh, the previous, uh, court TV and not available now? Well, it is available on the Wayback Machine. The whole archive or most of the archive of Crime Library is available on the Wayback Machine. Of course, I've kept all my articles, but mm. the um, it's unclear who has the rights to it now. I see. Okay. 
So uh, what are you working on these days, may I ask? Well, I am um, still working with sex offenders. Um, I do counseling with sex offenders locally to reduce their risk of recidivism. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of expert witness testimony on murder cases and uh, sexual crime cases because those are my specialties, especially the sexual crimes is my specialty and paraphilic behavior. Um, I had said earlier that I've written a, written a book about it called Sexual Obsessions Gone Wrong. That's okay. on Amazon. And it's about um, some ex very extreme paraphilic behaviors. Paraphilias, again, are sexual obsessions mm -hmm. and the legal ramifications of it. And, you know, many people believe, oh, it won't hurt anybody. He just has a foot fetish or something, or he's just involved in autoerotic asphyxiation. But there are a lot of legal ramifications involved. Um, and uh, I, I outline that in the book. At the end of it, I give more of a clinical explanation of it. Um, so I'm thinking of writing, continuing to write again. So I'm doing my private practice. And of course, then I'm doing Crimescape.com's um, new podcast, Crimes Unlimited, which is on Spotify. It'll soon be on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud. And um, and so just really having a lot of fun doing that and mm. meeting um, some of the top in the field, in, in the field of forensics and, and crime. And between your, your parents uh, with their uh, connections going back to a case in the 30s and uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Elliot Ness, and uh, investigators from that era to the present, you've, you've really given me a, a true history of true crime as it appeared and has it as it's uh, grown and changed over the years. And now uh, there's a chance for listeners, viewers, readers uh, through crowdsourcing to be uh, participants in the solving of the cases. So yes. it's uh, it's going to be a, a wild ride, and it, it's really going to be interesting seeing how this plan plays out going forward. Uh, any ideas on what where you see things going, and how you what what you think is uh, going to take place? Uh, do you have a crystal ball there, Rachel? Well, I have a lot of ideas that, um, but I'm not going to discuss them in depth. I'm thinking of doing something quite revolutionary. Okay. Um, and I've been talking to Dr. and Catherine Ramsland about it, um, but I'm not going to go into that now. But one thing I would like to do is um, do a show with Dr. Catherine Ramsland where we analyze um, mass killers, uh, spree killers, um, serial killers, and just criminals in general, um, because we like to bring our expertise together and uh, do it on TV um, so we can teach as well as help understand and maybe possibly solve ongoing crimes or Got past it. crimes. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a, a type of killer that I, I'm sort of familiar with, but I, I don't want to uh, uh, say that I understand exactly what it was. And that's spree killers. Can you give me a little bit of a heads up on that? Yes. Well, spree killers, you know, Dr. Catherine Ramsland just wrote a book on that. Okay. Um, and spree killers um, are people who go and, and start just randomly or not randomly start just uh, murdering people and uh, at different times sometimes and sometimes collectively. And then you also have uh, mass killers, you know, like we saw at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando and mm. such. Um, and then, then, of course, you have uh, serial killers. Um, where you have people who, uh, you know, start to fantasize about it and they have, um, uh, you know, usually from a very young age and then they start to act out on those fantasies and they have more of a uh, agenda, a modus, and a modus operandi to um, 
their methodology and how they choose to to kill. So um, it's quite fascinating. There's mm. so many different kinds of uh, crimes out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on a voracious appetite of uh, viewers, listeners, and readers that want to know more about um, the true crime that's taking place throughout America and with social media and uh, prevalence of cable TV and uh, yes. instant access to information. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more uh, uh, true crime cases being brought to the forefront, and hopefully Absolutely. There'll, there'll be uh, some more closure. So we can that's all we can hope for. So, Absolutely. Rachel, how can people reach you? Well, they can find me at uh, crimescape.com, and we'll soon have a another website specifically for the podcasts. That should be going up in the next four weeks, and that's just called crimesunlimited.com. Okay. And so crimescape.com for now, and they will not only list, be able to hear the podcasts that I do, the true crime podcast with forensic experts, but they'll also be able to read my book and books by Dr. Catherine Ramsland and other fantastic authors out there, as well as my mother. Right. Right. The uh, uh, the American Sweeney Todd by uh, Marilyn J. Bardsley. Yes. And she also did Killer in the Holy City. And she did um, a, a third book that is called After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And that's actually um, a book about the true story of the Jim Williams case here in Savannah, where we live. And she had helped her with the book. Um, Sonny Seiler, who is uh, was the lead defense attorney for Jim Williams, as well as the lead prosecuting attorney. And they gave her access to stuff that no one else had. So it's an absolutely fascinating read because the other story is more fictionalized. And there's characters in there that never existed mm. or they had died long before the murders. But it made for a great book and it made for great TV. But the true story, much more fascinating. It's a case of where, you know, the truth is more fascinating than fiction. Mm. Well, on that note, I'll let it go uh, for now. I thank you. I hope to have you on again sometime. Well, great. Uh, thank and, you. And I appreciate it, Rachel. If you could just hold on the line, uh, I'll turn off the tape recorder and uh, we'll talk uh, uh, to finish our conversation. Okay. Thanks, John. It was great talking with you. And you too. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is James Basinger. He is the creator and host of the Hide and Seek podcast. For the last eight years, James has made his career as an insurance agent, but always had an interest in the true crime genre. Inspired by podcasts such as Serial and Up and Vanished, he started a venture of his own. As a Washington State native, James came across Nancy Moyer's story. He was both intrigued by the convoluted details of her case, as well as having empathy towards her children that have grown up without their mom. After four months of investigating it, the first episode was released. When he's not hunting down new leads or recording new material for the next episode, James enjoys spending free time with his family. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, 
is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to johnhoda.com and click on the podcast page. There you will find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they're available for you free with your email subscription to the podcast as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes from my book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here is my ask. If you were informed, inspired, and entertained, by the stories today. Don't be bashful. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your friends, then leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can do so on the website at www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.